Jamar, earlier today, uh, he met with a smaller group of people, and you talked about uh, racism being prejudice plus power. Mm. Can, can you lay out that concept? Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about race and racism, but we actually tend not to have agreed upon definitions. And so then we're talking past each other and, and what do we mean? And so it's an important question because you'll often hear the concern from people about reverse racism or can't black people be racist too? And it depends on your definition of racism, right? And so one shorthand definition that I sometimes find helpful is that racism is prejudice plus power. So we tend to be familiar with the first term, prejudice, where people don't like one another because of whatever reason, uh, your language, your country of origin, your skin color. And in that sense, anyone can be racist because in the Christian view, everyone has sin. Everybody goes against God's law somehow. And so black people can be prejudiced, white people can be prejudiced, young, old, men, women, all of that. Anyone can be prejudiced. But when, it, when we talk about the issue of race, it's not just people being prejudiced. It's not just people not liking one another. You have to have prejudice plus power because what power does is it means you can impose your prejudices on someone else. And so you can make the laws, you can uh, start the businesses or take them away, you can threaten and intimidate. And historically in America, we know this, right? So let's just put it out there. In terms of race, white people have had the power, and so they have been able to impose their prejudices upon various sectors of society, political, economic, and social. And so while anybody can be prejudiced, according to this definition, racism has to have that element of power as well. Um, so I find that helpful. Um, another definition is that race, racism is a system of advantage based on race a system of advantage. And that gets beyond this idea of interpersonal racism, which is real, it's a thing. You can not like someone personally because of who they are, where they come from, or what their color is, or what their culture is, but that's not the only kind of racism. Racism works itself out in systemic and institutional ways as well. So a system of advantage based on race says that you don't have to be personally prejudiced against anyone. All you have to do is operate within a system that gives you certain advantages and privileges because of your skin color. And then disadvantages other people because of their skin color. But it's a system. It works automatically and by itself without you ever saying, well, I don't like black people. It's not necessary in a system of advantage based on race. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, for your talk. Really appreciate it. I've got a question, and I think a follow-up question based on your answer. You, you talked about at the end about looking to the margins. I'm wondering if you would mind elaborating a little bit on that. And particularly, yeah. I always, when I think about this issue, uh, it seems so grand and global and large. Uh, so how, how does looking to the margins, what does that look like? you know, like when I leave this place. That's good. Um, when you're an oppressed or marginalized people group, you tend to think about and practice your faith differently. And I think that uh, the white church has a lot to learn from the church on the margins in that regard. And so what I mean is there's, there's a great book. Um, I quoted Sung Chan Ra uh, toward the end. 
in his book, The Next Evangelicalism, but there's another book he wrote called Prophetic Lament. And in it, he makes the case that the black church in America knows how to lament, knows how to weep, because so often black people have been victimized in America because of race. At the same time, that's an element that uh, the dominant church may be lacking in some respects, the ability to weep with those who weep, because it's been, in terms of its social context, white people have had so many advantages relative to black people, which doesn't mean life was easy or perfect, not saying that, but he goes through some of the common songs, right? Um, you know, you'll have onward Christian soldiers in one context, and then another one, you'll have swing low, sweet chariot coming forward to carry me home. This longing for the next world and the next life. So when I say look to the margins, look to people who have been oppressed, um, they've experienced injustice and been marginalized because their experience of faith is one of asking of God in the Bible, how do I endure suffering? How do I endure reproach? What does my faith look like in that context? And as the, the white church seeks to, if it wants to be helpful in terms of racial equality from a Christian standpoint, well, there are a lot of Christians who have understood their faith as what motivates them, what enables them to survive, persevere, and resist. And so that's what I mean by look to the margin. That's very helpful. Uh, I don't see another question, so I'm going I'm to ask one more. Um, so I look around this room, and, and I'm sure you could see it better than any of us. You look around the room, and it's, you know, it's, it's a largely white audience. I teach at a university that is comprised 90-plus percent of white upper-middle-class students. Mm. So we can talk till the cows come home about these ideas. We can even uh, discuss issues, uh, politics, and other things. But this experience of being alongside people in the margins is uh, largely removed from us. So I'm kind of wondering if you have any advice for those of us who find ourselves, perhaps because of this structural right. uh, system that has right. perpetuated this and now placed us in a, in a situation where we're basically around people just like us. How do we, how do we right. expose ourselves to the margins? Great question. I mean, a lot of us find ourselves in racially homogenous environments, and then so what do you do with all this talk about diversity and <laughs> racial equality and reconciliation? Well, one, you still teach it because you want your students or your congregation or your family or whomever to be prepared for diversity when and where it comes. So, you know, if they're in undergrad now and in a majority white setting, they may go to the workplace or a different country or a different state or a different city where that's not always the case. So will they be prepared when that happens? The other thing to realize is Diversity comes in a lot of different forms, right? Not just racial diversity, there's economic diversity, there's gender diversity, uh, there's cultural diversity, there's linguistic diversity. And so teaching your people in whatever context they are to deal with diversity in whatever form it comes, because those principles are going to be the same, right? Equality, human dignity, all of that stuff. Lastly, though, you bring up a good point, because partly because of racism, we're isolated from one another. Right? There's a long and sordid history of residential segregation, a long and sordid history of school segregation. I gave you that one example of Bob Jones University, but there are many other examples like it. And so the question arises, what are you willing to do for the sake of racial equality? Most people will not contemplate switching schools, 
changing neighborhoods or doing things considered radical in order to put themselves in a more diverse environment. But if you think about the lengths to which people went to keep the races separated, will we not have to exert as much or more energy to integrate the races? And so we actually have to contemplate that which seems beyond the pale. I'm going to give up my job, or I'm going to move away from this area I've grown up in, or I'm actually going to switch schools, or I'm going to keep my kids in the public school and not the private school, or whatever. Those are the kinds of decisions, particularly on the majority, you have to contemplate. And I would argue that the historical evidence says there was a whole lot of creativity and effort made <laughs> to put up divisions and barriers between the races. We need to have a whole lot of creative, creative energy dedicated to breaking down those barriers, too. I don't know who's first. Art. Uh, can you hear me? It is. Just okay. talk a little louder. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about the last part? Uh, what does white supremacy look like today? And is it possible for white Christians to resist it? And if it is, then what might that look like? Yeah. Um, so white supremacy is a broad term in my mind, and it encompasses racism. But white supremacy speaks more broadly to the idea that our entire society has been constructed based along racial lines, which has whiteness at the center. So a very mundane example, you go to the grocery store, every other aisle is just food, but if it comes from any other place, it's called the ethnic food aisle. So what's normal <laughs> is white, and everything else is other. You can think about this in theology. Every class is called theology until it's racial or ethnic. It's black theology or Latino theology. And so what white supremacy does is it puts whiteness in the center of everything so that whiteness is normalized and, and everything else is otherized. And so that affects everything. It affects our curriculum in schools, right? Who do we read about and who do we learn about? Um, are we learning from people from the margins in our history books and our theology books and, and things of that nature? So it's pervasive, um, and it affects everyone. And yes, it's possible to resist it, but because it is so pervasive, it's very hard to resist it. And so you know, what I was talking about before, ways of resistance are really deliberately putting yourself in the way of diversity which is not going to happen in a white supremacist society. The inertia of a racially constructed society is going to pull people apart and isolate them. So it's not just going to happen by you living your life automatically. Mm. If you don't do anything about it, you will tend to be racially isolated. Um, Along those lines, I think earlier you, with some of us, you, when you were meeting, you used this walkway illustration. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was very helpful. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So um, uh, there's an analogy in sociological, cultural competency circles of a pedway. And you know a pedway at the airport, it's like a conveyor belt for people, helps you move between the terminals. And so they talk about someone who is actively racist, you know, the KKK, someone who uses racial slurs. They are actually walking along with the conveyor belt. And so they're moving toward their destination faster 
because they're going with the flow and they're actually giving their own momentum to it. Then it talks about the non-racist. And the non-racist, the person who is standing still on the conveyor belt. But the conveyor belt is still moving. And so the active racist and the non-racist are still going the same direction. It's still going to end up in the same spot. Most people you know are non-racist. That means they're friendly with people across the races. They have friends. They go out to lunch. They have coworkers, all those things. And so they're not foaming at the mouth racist, but that's where it ends. And so this analogy also talks about the anti-racist. So if you imagine that pedway, the racist is walking with it, the non-racist is standing still, but still moving in the same direction. The anti-racist is actually turned around and is walking against the grain of the conveyor belt. And what we need in America and in the church is more anti-racists. We need people who are actively working to dismantle the systems. For me personally, two main areas are public education and mass incarceration. Those dramatically affect people of color and the poor. And so adequate funding for public education, uh, properly trained teachers. I personally think principals are really the, the key to a lot of school turnaround. Most of the focus is on teachers, but I think we need to look very deeply at principal training and preparation as well. And then mass incarceration, the way the criminal injustice system works or doesn't work for certain people. And a lot of times it's based on money, whether they can pay bond or, or, or a fee or something like that. Um, and so those are a couple places to start. But learn your own context. I mean, every city has its own issues. And then get involved. You should be showing up at city council meetings, school board meetings, uh, meetings of civic groups. And you should be present, particularly as a person of faith. Are you known as somebody who cares about the city? Are you known as someone who, who, who cares about the community? And so as you do that, as you put yourself in the way of people who are different, their concerns are going to start to become your concerns. So I can only speak broadly up here, but as you get involved where you are, you're going to see, oh, immigration is important here, or policing is important here, or the issues of poverty, here's how it plays out where I am, and then you can get involved. So um, <clears throat> a pastor friend of mine told me once, um, you know, Ernie, the homogenous church, and a church that's homogenous and, and culture and look and feel, it's, it's okay. You don't have to feel guilty about that. And so that, as a result, there was resistance for the 20% or so that were of a different culture and feel from the rest of the church. Their, the worship was never, that style of person and their musical taste and whatever was never integrated. Uh, there just wasn't an attempt from that church, at least, to integrate that. On the other hand, I've had an African-American friend say, I could see it a mile away when I walk into a church, majority white, and you get the over-exuberant, oh, welcome, you're a black person, you're in our nice white church. And so how do we, how, as a church, how do we move forward in an authentic way? And I think you'd answered some of the question that just a second ago, but how do we move forward authentically, proactively anti-racist as a church within our own body, but then also in the community. Yeah, great. Um, I, I've said this a couple of times today. I really don't think it's a question of practical steps. I think it's a question of courage and will. So oftentimes the resistance 
um, to taking the steps that are necessary for diversity aren't for a lack of ideas. It's because people don't want to pay the price of what it will take to have a genuinely diverse congregation or community. And so what I mean is this, you know, in some of the examples I gave, like when MLK went to Southern Seminary, uh, they faced repercussions like a loss of donations, uh, people calling for their jobs, people publicly speaking out against them. So the question is, are your church leaders or your community leaders willing to take on those kinds of consequences for the sake of diversity and racial equality? Because I bet you, I bet you if you sat down for 10 minutes and brainstormed a list, you could probably come up with a, a robust list of practical steps you yourself could take or your community could take to increase racial equality. It's, it's, it's not a poverty of ideas. It's a lack of will to take on the consequences that those ideas entail. And so I often go to uh, the first chapter of Joshua where uh, Moses has died and now it's Joshua who's going to lead uh, the people of Israel into the promised land, cross over the Jordan and take the land. And Joshua is understandably nervous. How do, you, how do you step in and fill the shoes of Moses? Um, God encourages him by saying three times in the first nine verses, be strong and courageous. And I think we need to hear that today as we think about racial issues, particularly in the church. I think what we need more than ideas is that affirmation of be strong and courageous. And the promise that God gives to Joshua behind the be strong and courageous part is I will be with you. And that's what we have to take as people of faith into this conversation about racial equality, is that we can be strong and courageous because we know we are with God. This is what he wants to see. And no matter what you may endure in this life, loss of job, prestige, status, whatever, relationships, God said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I just don't think we believe that enough when it comes to racial equality. It's not that we don't know what to do, it's that we're not willing to pay the price for doing the right thing. But if we believe that promise, I'm with you, and you're blessed when you're persecuted. And I think we would be bolder like some of these saints and ancestors I mentioned. Earlier, when you were speaking with some of us, you talked about that the uh, people we look to in the past who have made great gains, mm. Mm. paid great prices, mm. and that we don't need to forget that. Yes, yes. So here's a super practical step. Oh, yeah. Don't say Martin Luther King Jr. died. Say he was killed. He was murdered. He was murdered. Yeah. So we're coming up in April on the 50th anniversary of his assassination. And a lot of people say he died as if he, you know, just passed away peacefully in his sleep in old age. He didn't. He was shot and killed by a racist white supremacist because he had the audacity to preach about the beloved community and to be in Memphis in support of sanitations who were striking for better working conditions. That was his great transgression that got him killed. And so how dare we hold up Martin Luther King and his compatriots in the civil rights struggle as these great examples of Americans and as believers, but we're not willing 
to endure the same kind of struggle and sacrifice that they had to. So until we're willing to do that, we're not going to see much progress or change. And, I, and, and this illustration of the pedway is so powerful that to do nothing is to go with this enormous system that was developed very cleverly mm-hmm. and over a long period of time. And the mm-hmm. only way to actually go against it is to walk against it. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Uh, Jamar, you've mentioned a ton of resources uh, tonight. Uh, what are some books, podcasts, sermons, uh, scriptures that you found personally formative uh, in this arena? And then what would you commend to other people as well? Good, good, good. Um, also, before you begin, you're my hero, and I think you're a theological Kobe Bryant. Oh, thank you. I think that's a compliment. <laughs> I'm a Bulls fan. Oh. I grew up during the six-peat era. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, one, go to thewitnessbcc.com. <laughs> we have wonderful resources. We actually just put together a resource list of black pastors, writers, and theologians. Because a lot of times people are asking, well, I don't just want to read dead white guys in terms of my theological formation. And so go to thewitnessbcc.com, and we have a whole list of books on theology, history, race, uh, from people of color. So that's helpful. Learn from people from different racial and cultural backgrounds. Um, Some of the things that have been personally formative for me, again, uh, the image of God and the doctrine of the image of God from from Genesis 1, uh, Joshua 1, uh, the whole chapter, really, but the first nine verses in particular, uh, but we were talking earlier just, to, just about a, a more a, a meta-narrative view, right? So not just sort of proof-texting passages, but seeing from Genesis to Revelation, uh, God in Scripture has a plan for diversity. And so it ends up in Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9 with people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathering around the throne and worshiping God. But that's not an afterthought. That's not God getting to the 66th book and be like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, diversity. Let me write that in there. <laughs> That was the plan from the very beginning, and so do we know the meta-narrative? And so that book, J. Daniel Hayes, From Every People and Nation, is helpful. But I also, as a student of history, recommend studying history. Now, for folks who are not readers, there's a bunch of documentaries out there right now, so you can watch TV and learn. Um, On Netflix, they still have the documentary 13th. Um, They also have another documentary about O.J. Simpson and his trial that's really enlightening about uh, police brutality and, and, and the court system. Uh, there's another documentary on PBS called uh, The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross, The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross by Henry Louis Gates, Jr., uh, a professor at Harvard. Uh, there was one that uh, just came out two years ago, or two days ago, a documentary on HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and universities called Tell Them We Are Rising. Um, And it's critical that you understand the relationship of African Americans to education because for so long we were systematically denied an education. And uh, historically black colleges and universities have been a critical part of black education throughout history. So watch those documentaries and then read about the civil rights movement. So historians are constantly frustrated at the fact that many students in the general populace have this idea about civil rights that one day there was a little old lady named Rosa Parks who refused to get up. Uh, then there was a man named Martin Luther King who led a boycott and gave, a, gave the I Have a Dream speech. And then uh, they passed the Civil Rights Act and racism was gone. <laughs> Sorry. And that's what, I mean, if you break it down, 
That's what our popular memory of the civil rights movement amounts to, but there's so much more to it. And so if you study history, I would start with the civil rights movement, start with folks like Martin Luther King Jr. Many of us, I hadn't even read a full length biography of King until I got to grad school, because it was never assigned in seminary, that's for sure. Uh, so David J. Garrow's Bearing the Cross is really long, but it's really good. Um, a shorter one is Let the Trumpet Sound. Um, trying to remember the author, it'll come to me, but Let the Trumpet Sound. Those are good places to start and let those lead you. I also recommend local histories. So histories of Virginia or your local community. Um, histories of, do biographies of other folks are great. Uh, there's a couple great biographies. Just Google any name on Amazon. Fannie Lou Hamer, Medgar Evers, Ida B. Wells, all of those things. And there's a bunch of free stuff. I would do um, uh, Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Uh, that's free. I would do W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Souls of Black Folks. I would do Carter G. Woodson, The Miseducation of the Negro. So read black authors and scholars. <laughs> okay, we have two. Uh, Corey, Corey, I think he was right in front of you. So we have two minutes, and this will have to be the last question. But Corey, you can perhaps get him during the refreshment time. Okay. So. This is just a reflection. I think often the white liberal fantasy of racial equality looks like power sharing. But I just, I don't, I feel like it's more like we need to learn from black people and others uh, how not to have power. Mm. Great point, great point. Uh, so yes, putting yourself under the authority of persons of color is critical. I realized not that long ago that in most of the audiences I speak to that are predominantly white, they may have only had one or two or maybe no black professors or teachers. They may have never sat under the preaching of a black pastor at a church where they were a member not just visiting. And so if you think about it, if you never actually on a consistent basis or a prolonged period had a person of color in a position of authority in your life, it's going to be real hard for you to learn from them. It's going to be real hard for you to consider them on the same intellectual, social level as the people you're used to seeing in authority. And so we have to put ourselves in the position of having to learn from and be subject to in various ways people who are different than we are. And until we gain some more facility and comfort doing that, I think there's going to be a hesitation to learn from, to look to the margins and to learn from people at the margins. So you're right, uh, a lot of what needs to happen, particularly for folks in the majority, is to experience what it's like not to have power to be in the minority in a situation, uh, or to be in the position where you have to listen and learn instead of dictating the direction. Thanks very much, Jamar. So um, in just a moment, we're going to express our thanks to you very properly. But first, when you came in, you should have been given one of these cards. Cafe Veritas is holding two more events this year. The next one will be on shame by a very a very significant psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson, and he's written a, a great book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we 
we believe about ourselves. And it will be on April the 12th at Thomas Harrison Middle School. And that information is there. And then in the fall, uh, N.T. Wright, who is considered by many the world's leading New Testament scholar, will be doing a Cafe Veritas here. Um, and the location for that is to be announced. If you would like to learn about these events, they occur about three times a year. There was at the opening table uh, one of these cards. If you put your name and email on there, we promise we will not email you anything except information about an upcoming event. This is not my best side. <laughs> well, um, and events only occur three times a year. You're not going to get any other we're not going to add you to email lists or try to get you to do things. This is just if you want to know about these because the location does move. So with that being said, in just a moment, we're going, there's some lovely refreshments in the back. Please stay, and Jamar is, will be open for some conversations. And Corey, if you'll stand up. Corey, you can find Corey if you would like. Stand up so they can see. If you would like to find information. Thanks. Okay. If you would like to find more information about local issues dealing with some of these subjects, Corey would love to tell you about it, and he will work the crowd during the refreshments. All right. Jamar, thanks so much. Thank you.